Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are back with our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. And here, Jordan is still dealing with that interlude in Jacob's life, and specifically what's going on with the Abrahamic covenant after he's been given the blessing. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I've called this the transformation of Jacob because that's where we are in the text. I thought an overview of this whole theme would be good. If we look back at Genesis chapter 1, we see that God is a God who makes things and then transforms them. He could have made the whole world at once. Instead, he made it dark, empty, and shapeless. And then, well, not then, but from the very beginning, the Spirit is in the world, and the Spirit works with the world and transforms it day by day into something new each time. Then the Spirit goes inside of dirt and makes human beings, and human beings do that. And God does that to us. So God is constantly, well, not constantly, but from time to time, transforming people, And just as you have six days of transformation in Genesis 1, so when God comes and transforms things, it's a day of the Lord. And on these days, things get turned inside out, upside down, or one way or the other transformed. Animal goes into the fire and is turned into smoke, or a human being circumcised. In Jacob's case, Jacob receives this blessing, from Isaac, which we were looking at last time just in summary, puts on him both the Abrahamic covenant and Isaac's perversion of that covenant. It's just like being born. We're born human beings in the image of God. And we're also born with Adam's sin. Now Jacob receives the covenant and also receives the sin that has come into the covenant. He receives Isaac's sins Isaac's distortion of the covenant along with the covenants, directly parallel to being born in the image of God and also with the sin of Adam, which distorts what that image means, distorts the original covenant. And the thing that is distorted here is the meaning of circumcision. Circumcision we saw as a sign of death. To cut off the foreskin is equivalent to cutting off your son. And it is the Son who is to be the Messiah and bring the world back to where it's supposed to be and forward to where it's supposed to go. And our sons are no good. So we have to kill them. And a sign of killing your son is to cut off the place where your son comes from. Now, it doesn't actually do that. And Abraham, after he is circumcised... And after Isaac is circumcised, takes Isaac up to kill him. Shows us what that means. But just as circumcision does not actually castrate you, so in the sacrificial system, your son is not actually put to death. Instead, there's another son that takes a place. A son of the herd or a son of the flock. But the meaning is the same thing. Someone has to die, and Adam can't die for his own sins. The son of Adam... The son of man has to die for Adam's sins. The seed of the woman has to die for the woman's sins. Parents can't die for their own sins. The tragedy is our children have to die for our sins. 
which means that when we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, one of the things we have to do is forgive our parents. Because every parent who's ever lived has handed problems to his kids that his kids have to work with. For whoever you are in the world, you've got some problems that your parents hand to you. Maybe they hand you a load of debt that you've got to pay off. More likely, it's some psychological things. Habits, customs, traditions. Things that are in your consciousness that you have to work through. I don't know that it's a matter of genes, but genes are just opportunities. But these are psychological tendencies. So, that is what circumcision has to do with. And that's why in the sacrificial system, animals that are called sons are killed. Now, we went through last week and showed how all the sins of Israel... Israel is a nation that represents that. Israel bears the sins of the world. That's why the Gentiles don't have to circumcise their foreskins, and they don't have to put their sons to death, because Israel is going to do it for them. You've got 70 nations of the world... At the Tower of Babel, their representatives fall and bring all those nations under judgment. Then God calls Abraham and that line to bear the death or the penalty that the Tower of Babel incurs. Remember that the patriarchal narratives all stem from the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel is the fall of the Noahic world and it's the fall of the nations and so we have to have a substitutionary nation that will die for all the other nations. You have to have a substitutionary man to die for other men, and that's expanded to mean you have a substitutionary nation to die for all the other nations, and Israel becomes the nation that dies for all the rest. And so Israel bears this calling to manifest this. That doesn't mean you have to suffer and be unhappy every moment of the day, that you're going to die younger than anybody else, but it does mean you have this privilege of living a somewhat different kind of life so that others can live the normal life. And Israel is always that way. Israel doesn't have architects. When they go to build the temple, they have to go to Hiram. Israel doesn't have anything except food. Basically, they make food. They have vineyards and olive yards and fields and animals, and they produce food. Israel produces food for all the other nations because it's a priestly nation. You want food, you go to Israel. You want architecture, you want cedar trees, you want trade with other nations, you want ships to travel on the sea, you go to these other nations. You get an alliance with Egypt or Hiram of Tyre. If the nations are converted, you can have a positive alliance with them, but they do these other things. Israel does the bread and wine and oil thing, the food thing. It's food land because it's another Garden of Eden. And it's also a land where there's a lot of death, symbolically, because that is Israel's calling, to be a suffering servant. The suffering servant is the nation of Israel. If they don't want to be, the suffering servant is the remnant in Isaiah. Because the remnant doesn't want to be, the suffering servant is Jeremiah. Read what Isaiah says about the suffering servant, and it's a good description of Jeremiah. But not even Jeremiah is good enough to be the suffering servant. We know that ultimately it has to be Jesus. But before that, it's these others. Abraham has to suffer. He has to go through life with this weird name, Abram, father of many, 
which is a disgrace and humiliation to him because he doesn't have any kids. So these are ideas of marginal kinds of suffering. It's very marginal. You don't suffer a whole lot if you put an animal to death. But it reminds you that you have a calling to bear the death of the nations. You don't suffer a whole lot from becoming unclean. The only thing becoming unclean means is you can't go to worship. And if you form up into a war camp, you can't be in the war camp. And you can't be inside the city walls if you have leprosy. But if you have leprosy, doesn't mean you can't sleep with your wife or your husband. Does not mean you can't have friends. Doesn't mean you can't shake hands with other people. I have leprosy and I shake hands with another man. All he has to do is wash himself, be unclean till evening. No problem there. These are inconveniences. But all of these inconveniences speak of death. Happen to sacrifice animals. Speaks of death. So all of these signs of dying for others are what Israel is called to be. Did you want to make a point? The question is... Israel is set aside as a nation that dies for other nations, but eventually you move down to the individual Jesus Christ, some of that in the Old Testament too. Well, yeah, I think that connects with what I was saying last week when I showed how all the sins and the uncleanness are put on the priests and sacrifices and are put on the high priest. And once a year the high priest has to die for the nation, only he doesn't have to because it's put on the scapegoat and the other goat. So that there is a picture right there in the Levitical law that all of this is actually going to be concentrated in one person. And I think also the nation narrowing down to the remnant and then narrowing down to Jeremiah is another picture of how it's going to be focused on one person. And see, Jeremiah has these two sons, so to speak, Daniel and Ezekiel. Daniel and Ezekiel are the same age. Daniel went into exile 12 years before Ezekiel. Daniel was about 20 after he completed his training, which was in the third year of his exile, and Ezekiel was 30 when he was called. And if you look at the chronology, they're the same age. And both of them would have been disciples of Jeremiah. Jeremiah would have been a preceding generation. So you narrow it down to Jeremiah, and then the kingdom starts up again on the other side of him as a new covenant starts up. So, yeah, I think the point you're making is is that in the Old Testament you see this narrowing down to the individual from time to time, and it's all pointing to the fact that Jesus becomes the true Israel, and that's why out of Egypt I call my son. What is said of the nation is said of him as an individual. Now all of that was to say, Abraham circumcises Isaac and gives Isaac the job of doing this work. Now the work is, you have to be willing to let your son go. And that has several meanings. You have to be willing to let your children go. Pagans can't do that. Only Christians can let their children go. We'll see in a minute. There are lots of things pagans simply can't do. It's so exceptional that it's remarkable when it happens. That's why in paganism, marriages are arranged at childbirth. That's why in paganism, a son grows up and he has to follow in his father's footsteps and do exactly what he did. It would mean that my sons would have to be theologians, because I'm one. Now, on the surface of it, that's ridiculous. I mean, being a theologian or being a composer of 
art music. It's something that requires so many different things to come together in a particular person's life that it's kind of silly to say that your children would have to follow in that. Well, one of the things that that means is that in the ancient world, you don't have professions. The only kind of profession you have is the kind of profession that a child can follow in. That if you're a tanner, your son will be a tanner. If you're a blacksmith, your son will be a blacksmith. If you're a farmer, your son will be a farmer. If you're a warrior, your son will be a warrior. And that's the way it is. You don't give them up. They have the same name. They grow up and become just like you. And they have to be copies of it. They can't be the image of God, which is infinite, which means your children might be radically different. My sons are very different. They're both interested in non-liberal arts type stuff. At least not the kind that I was interested in. That doesn't surprise me. In the ancient world, that would have been a cross. If your son was very different from well, part of circumcision is the meaning you have to give up your son. Because no, no human man is good enough to be a father for more than a few years. Once a child gets to a certain age, you can't be a father anymore. The biblical age is 20. Once they get to 20, you can't presume to be their father anymore and tell them what to do. They're still advising their degrees of all this stuff. But essentially, God has to be their father. They have to turn them over to the fatherhood of God. And all the father-son stories in Genesis have to do with that. This is what taking Isaac up on the mountain and almost putting him to death means. It's part of our circumcision, being able to do that. Giving up your son. And there's risk and there's pain involved in that because you don't want to do it. And it means giving up the son you love. Which again among the pagans means your firstborn son. The firstborn son is usually the one who has the name Junior. Then the rest of them have other names. And the firstborn son is the one you put all of your hopes in, and he's the one who's supposed to be just like you, take over the family stuff. The other sons, they don't matter as much. They may go off and do something else. But the firstborn son, especially in paganism, bears all the load of being just like the daddy. He's the one you got to give up. Your son, whom you love, take your son, your only son, the one you love, and put him up. Now, again, Christianity breaks that down, where we treat all our children equally. We're supposed to, and the Bible teaches that. But the Bible starts by saying, you have to kill this idea that your firstborn son is so much better than all the rest. And if you want to keep him to yourself, give him your name, there's nothing wrong with naming him, child in this, but... In paganism, what that means is your firstborn son is supposed to grow up to be a carbon copy of you. That means you can never make any historical progress. Your society is completely stuck in time. And all pagan societies are stuck in time. It also means that the child grows up and remains a slave to the past forever. And then he does the same thing. Well, God is breaking that pattern. He breaks that pattern by saying... Specifically, the firstborn son, you have to give up. At the Exodus, he tells them, the only way I'm going to let you out of Egypt is if you give all your firstborn sons to me. Now that is precisely what the natural man doesn't want to do. It's a pagan man. We're not used to thinking like pagans, but the pagan says, no, my firstborn son is mine. How about one of these other sons? No, God says, 
I think your firstborn son, if you want to leave Egypt, your firstborn son goes to me. You kill that Passover lamb, and your firstborn son is mine. That's the price. That means you are breaking this family way of thinking and creating a new family way of thinking. Now, of course, the Levites get substituted for those firstborn. So Israel gets them back, but not until they've given them up. Not until they've said, yeah, okay, we will give up all of our hopes for the future and all of our idolatry, whereby I play God and make my son be just like me. I'll give all that up and give it to God. And my children will be like God instead of being like me. Because God has an infinite personality. Interacting with God's infinite personality will make my sons and daughters blossom, whereas if they just interact with my limited personality, there's only so far they can go. So you want to transfer. And God says, you have to transfer to me, not to a God made in your image. Don't keep them yourself. Give them to me. Circumcision means that, practically speaking. So that's what Isaac has to do. And that's what Isaac won't do. Because God tells him exactly which son is to receive the blessing. And part of what that means is Isaac has to pick the son he likes the best, who happens to have come out of the womb first, and the one that he set all his affection on, and he has to kill him. Practically speaking, that means he gives Esau less than Jacob. He has to kill his own affections. He has to kill this pagan way of thinking, which is motivated by food and glory, the external glory of a hunter rather than an accountant. I mean, Esau is glamorous. He's a hunter. You can make a movie about him. Jacob is an accountant. Only Woody Allen would make a movie about an accountant. And it wouldn't star Arnold Schwarzenegger. So that's what he has to do, and he won't do it. So... That brings us into the death of the Abrahamic covenant. And this is really what we've been talking about. I'll go over this and look at another way in which Abraham is made into a different kind of a person. God is in the business of breaking down paganism and making a new kind of world. He does it by making new kinds of people. Abraham becomes a new kind of man, one who can leave a city behind. Pagans can't do that. Can we talk about that in here? I don't think so. Okay, well then let's talk about it. When Socrates was told at the end of his life, before his time was up for sure, look, we've had enough of you. You need to leave the city. What did he do? He killed himself. Pagan can't leave his city. Now, if he is a tribe, he can't leave his gods. The reason you can't leave the city is because... That's where the gods are, but more importantly, it's not just gods, it's your whole way of life. You have, in the center of the city, in the citadel, an inner fortress with an inner wall within the city. It's on the highest part of the city, called the high place. And inside that citadel, you have the sacred fire which burns all the time. And the sacred fire is tended by girls who are virgins or women who are sacred prostitutes or both and by priests. And if the city walls are broken down and the citadel walls are broken down and the virgins are raped, 
Well then, your city is cursed. You sacrosanct things character of the city has been broken down. Your impregnable walls have been penetrated, and so have the virgins who represent that. That's in the Bible, by the way, when it says that the sons of Eli slept with the women who served at the tabernacle. It's pointing to the same idea. Their moral standing is parallel to God's guardians of Israel. And when that moral standing is gone, God stops guarding Israel. Architecturally, this means the same thing. Well, that's what you have in the city. And when you grow up there, you grow up in that city, and that's where everything feels right. That's where the water tastes like water. And we did talk about water. Water tastes right that you grow up with. If you grow up in Spain and you are living on a mountainside and there's a stream that comes down and that's the water you drink, then that's what tastes like water. When you go somewhere else and you taste the water and you taste the minerals. All water tastes funny except what you grew up with. And when you grow up here, this is where the water tastes right. And water is life. This is where life is. This is where they speak your language. This is where they dress a certain way. This is where they smell a certain way. People didn't bathe every day in the ancient world. So they smelled a certain way, and they smell like the food they ate. You eat garlic, and you'll smell like garlic. You eat the cheese and the food that grows up here, the plants that grow with the minerals that are around here, the animals that eat those plants that grow up with these minerals, and you smell a certain way, and your city smells a certain way, and it smells like home. Now, we're all familiar with this, because if your parents didn't move away from where you grew up, then when you go home, it smells a certain way, the water tastes right, it doesn't taste like something else. Now, modern people move around so much, they don't experience this so much. But this is the total context reality in which the pagan lives. Now, if he's a tribal person, then this whole package moves around from place to place. But when you move from tribe to city, then it's located in a specific place, and you really can't leave that city. If you read the Odyssey, the only thing Odysseus wants to do is to go home, where the cheese tastes like cheese, should taste, where the wine tastes like wine, should taste, because it's made with the water that's here, and out of the grapes that grew up with these minerals, where his wife is. He can't leave. All he can do is go back. Even in the Aeneid, when Aeneas leaves Troy, all he can really do is go make another Troy called Rome. He can't really go somewhere else. In the ancient world, the ancient man just can't leave. And the reason he can't leave is partly because he's a child. And the scriptures say at the conference, all free Christian people are basically children and they're insecure. But beyond that, these gods aren't universal gods. The gods are only here. If you go over there, those are other gods. And you don't know about those. Now, if you're a tribe, you take your gods with you. But it's still a very dangerous thing to go somewhere else. That's why you don't have very many people travel. Traders and caravanners take their gods with them. Now, Abraham starts off, God says, leave your city and go over here, and I'll go with you. He begins to tell him, look, I'm not just your God, I'm the universal God, and wherever you go, that's where I'll be. So you can go somewhere else. 
And the water may taste funny, but it's still water. The food may taste different, but it's still food. The people may speak a different language, but they're still images of God. You can go somewhere else. That's really a big deal, and we don't think of it. I think if we could go to some pagan land and read these stories out loud, you might see shocked expressions on people's faces. We talked about this with the twins. In most cultures, twins are killed. The fact that these twins aren't killed would be a surprise in a lot of places. It doesn't surprise us because we're used to it. It's a surprise that Abraham can pack up and move away. This here, how do you leave it? Well, you leave it when God tells you to. Now, in the ancient world, eventually they began to think, in the imperial age of the ancient world, after the city period, when you get to the philosophers, does anybody remember who the first Greek philosopher is? Thales. What did Thales say? Remember all these pre-Socratic philosophers? Thales said, all is water. Then Anaximander said, all is fire. I can't remember. Anaximander said, all is undecidable. They kept saying, all is this. Well, part of what that means is, at this time, the Greeks, around 500 B.C., they started to have contact with these other cultures. Part of what he was saying was, all water is water. But, in philosophy, you wind up with a universal God who has no character. He's not a person. It's just a thing. It's just ultimate being. It's not somebody you can talk to. It's not somebody you can pray to. It's not somebody that's going to rescue you when you're in trouble. Here's a value. It's just an empty idea. Before that time, everybody had personal gods, but they were local. The God of the Bible is both personal and universal. And he's the only God who is. Because he's a true God. Abraham becomes this new kind of person who can leave a city behind. Thus, then he becomes a newer kind of man, one who can offer his son to God. See, there are really two crises in Abraham's life. One is to leave the old city behind, going to some place and not knowing where it'll be and what'll happen. That's very difficult. The second crisis is even worse. One who can take his firstborn son, but he's got all of his emotional investment in that son, and give him up. Thus he dies twice. He dies to the world, and he dies to his son. Now the original Abrahamic promise was this, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. Bless you. Make your name great. You will be a blessing. Bless those who bless you. He who curses you all a curse and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, there's mention of land there and there's children. In chapter 15, you have a whole vision there where God comes to Abram and says, I will take care of you. And Abram says, how do I know I'm going to receive this land? And he says... Know for certain that your descendants will be in a land that's not yours, but then they will come back and they will have this land. To your descendants I've given this land. Then he's got promises of a child in chapter 17. I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. My covenant is with you. You will be a father of a multitude. Sarah will have this son. Now if you begin to notice what happens in these stories, God says this is your land. I've already made you leave one land and come over here. Now this is your land. Then he has to leave it. After Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham has to go because the land is foul. And he has to go down to Gerar. God gives him a son. And then he says, you have to kill your son. There are two fundamental promises there. Land and seed. Land and son. 
He has to die to both of them so that both of them can live. Now, Abraham becomes the kind of person who can do that. Your average pagan can't do it, you see. He fights wars over land. Everybody's seen Henry V by Shakespeare. Well, what's happening there? Well, the king of England says, well, the king of France has got some of my lands over there in France. I'm just going to go over there and kill a bunch of Frenchmen and take my lands back. Then Joan of Arc comes along. She tries to get some of the land back for France. They're all murdering each other over who has this land. They don't stop and think, hey, this land really belongs to these poor peasants who live there. Why don't we just leave them alone? Why do we have to send armies through here and murder each other over who's going to control this property? Why don't we just leave those peasants alone? They've suffered enough. It's their land. Well, it never even occurs to them to think that way. Everybody's fighting over pieces of land and murdering each other over pieces of land. That's what pagans do. Abraham, what does Jesus say? If they demand your coat, give them your cloak. Give it up. Don't fight over it. Abraham says, hey, you want this? I'm leaving. I'll go over here and live in Gerar. I'll move here because God will give it to me eventually. He has to become the kind of person who can let it go. He can let his son go. He can let his land go. He can let his city go, knowing that God will give him back. Now, Isaac inherits all this from Abraham. If you become a certain kind of person, then your children will grow up with the benefits or the disabilities of that. And Isaac grows up with a father who's about 100 years old when he's born, who has all these habits of thought in his mind. So Isaac has all these benefits. Isaac is with Abraham when they move from place to place, looking for a city that's off in the future instead of looking back to a city they left behind and wishing they could get back there, like Odysseus. It's the opposite of the Odyssey. All Odysseus wants to do, all Ulysses wants to do, is get back to where he was. Abraham doesn't want to go back to Ur. He wants to go forward to another place. Well, Isaac grows up with this. Isaac grows up with a father who has already let one son go. All of this, psychologically speaking, Isaac inherits. And, you see, Isaac is willing to move to Gerar when he has to. And he has the wisdom of Abraham in dealing with Abimelech. We looked at all of that. All of this he inherits from Abraham. Then he falls. So, that's where we are in this story. The covenant's been made. The covenant involves death and resurrection. The covenant has grown in Isaac. And now, it falls. Isaac kills it. Because Isaac is unwilling to sacrifice the son he loves, and thereby he rejects the meaning of circumcision. What circumcision meant is what Isaac won't do. He won't circumcise himself. He won't circumcise himself by giving up the son that he really wants. And it should have been an easy choice if his heart had been right. Rebecca's heart was right. She knew which son was preferred. Isaac's was wrong. Isaac intends to take the covenant and give it all to wicked Esau, and his family of evil wives and children. Now, I'll just remind you that Esau has been married for 37 years at this point. He has children. He has bad children that scream and yell in church. <laughs> just kidding. He has bad children. He has bad wives. And Isaac sees all this and doesn't care. So this is what's put on Jacob. Now, Jacob has to pick it up at this point. And 
That's what this blessing means. And last time we looked at the fact that when we're baptized, we receive all the blessings of Jesus and all the problems of the church because we're put in the church as well as in Jesus by baptism. And then the Lord's Supper, the bread that we break, is a sharing in the body of the church as well as in the sharing of Jesus. We are one loaf. And when you come to the Lord's Supper, you get all the benefits of Jesus and you also assume the problems that are in the church. It plugs you into where the church is right now. We grow up in the natural world in a certain culture and we have whatever is in that culture for good or bad. In the church, this is a second culture and we're constantly reinforcing that culture and changing it, for better or worse. Well, Isaac puts that on Jacob. In the blessing, Jacob now carries Isaac's sin. So Jacob is a messianic figure in that sense. And Jacob now has to carry Isaac's sin and die for it, because the son has to die. What is Jacob's summary of his life? He doesn't have a very pleasant life. At least it didn't seem pleasant to him. The days of the years of my sojourning are 100 years and 30 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, nor have they reached the days of the years of the life of my father during the days of their sojourning. Genesis 47.9 So, he has to carry this burden because of Isaac. That's what Jesus has to do. Jesus has to carry our burden and deal with it. Jacob has to carry Isaac's burden and deal with it. Jacob will carry the death of the Abrahamic covenant and through his crisis it will be born anew. And that's what we move into now in the narrative. That's what we want to look at. How Jacob now takes up Isaac's position. In a sense, Isaac is blind. Jacob has to start off blind. Does Jacob start off blind? See, just think all the good stuff God did to Abraham, all the good stuff God did to Isaac, and Isaac's sin, and all of that's put on Jacob, and now where are we? Well, Isaac is blind. He tends to prefer the wrong sons. He's not dealing very well with his sons. He's food-oriented. All that stuff now is on Jacob. And you can psychologize this and say, well, he grew up in a family where it was this way, and so naturally he would tend this way. But symbolically, spiritually, it's more than just that. Jacob has to carry this. So Jacob has to be blind. He has to start off blind. He has to start off with the temptation to be too oriented toward food. He has to start off with the temptation to favor some sons over others. And he has to work that through. Because now that's all put on him. Now does Jacob start off blind? Yeah, the first thing that happens to Jacob, virtually, the first important event, he spent seven years earning Rachel, and then when it's dark at night, they didn't have street lights back then, they brought Leah to him in the tent when it was dark and he couldn't see what was happening, and he winds up married to Leah. So he starts off blind. So that's why we're doing this. That's why we're looking at this. Because now what the rest of this narrative is going to be partly to do with, not just interesting stories about Jacob, but it's also going to be showing us in some ways what Jesus did for us. Imagine that Jacob is Jesus and all of this is put on him and now he has to work it out. So that we inherit something better. 
Well, the fall and the death of the Abrahamic covenant is put on Jacob. Jacob has to work it out so his sons can have something better. So a lot of the narrative from here on out is going to have to do with that. It's also going to have to do with some other things as well. But it's going to have to do with that. This is what I call the cross of Jacob here. Number three, Jacob must go through what Isaac went through and bring healing. Do it again. Thus Jacob is also deceived in the dark by his wife, although he had done nothing explicitly to deserve it. The Isaac deserved to be deceived in the dark. Jacob didn't. Jacob experiences death as an innocent, just as Jesus experienced our death as an innocent. If they crucified me, I would deserve it, just as Isaac deserved to be tricked in the dark. Jesus didn't deserve to be crucified, and Jacob did not deserve to be tricked in the dark. God, through Rebekah, deceived Isaac in the dark in order to save him. Isaac's way of life, inherited by Jacob, is now to be dealt with in a larger way. Like Isaac, Jacob also plays favorites with his wives and with his sons. Like Isaac, Jacob hates the wife God chooses to bless the more. Says Leah was hated. Does it mean hate in our modern sense? We'll get to what it means when we get there. But he disfavored her, resented her. She was in on this trick, obviously. Didn't stop him from having a lot of children with her. Now, I've got a note here that doesn't mean that Rachel was wicked like Esau. Each doubling pair in Genesis is different from the others. So you can't say, well, Leah is righteous, Rachel is wicked, Jacob hates the righteous wife and loves the wicked wife. No, it's different. But there's a parallel. Jacob has this tendency. Jacob learns to become a new kind of person, a righteous lawgiver who dispenses equal justice to his sons, but this isn't learned right away. This is where we're going. We've got to overcome this business of playing favorites with the sons. It takes Jacob a while to learn that. He makes some mistakes along the way. Or does some things that turn out to have unhappy consequences. We can put it that way. Oh, I was going to talk about this at more length. Maybe we'll come back to it. Equitable enforcement of just laws is the only way to stop the spreading of mimetic rivalry, brother, hatred, and feuding. Well, Jacob sets the stage for Sinai. Well... We will have to come back to that. I'll mark that, and we'll talk about it more next week. See, in all these pagan societies, if you do something to me, i got to get you back, plus a little bit. And then you got to get me back, plus a little bit more. And my friends will take up my side, and your friends will take up your side. My sons will take up my side, and your sons will take up your side. And so whenever there's brother-brother strife, it spreads into society. And if you have twins, that's why you have to kill twins. Because with twins, you're going to get brother-brother rivalry, and it will spread into society. As each twin's friends take up his cause, and their children take up his cause. Now the way you stop that is to have strict enforcement of written laws that everybody knows. If you do X, you will be punished, not by the guy you hurt, but by the government. And so what we have to move to, now that we've got more, as long as it's just Abraham and Isaac, you know, one son, one son, but as soon as you get a community, you got to have law. A community of brothers, you have to have law. You have to have law over brothers. You cannot have clan rule, because the brothers will wind up at each other's throats, and you will have feuding, and rivalry, and you got to have laws. you got to move outside the family. 
The fact that you've got more than one brothers living together forces you to move outside the family in terms of government. Can't have family government anymore. You've got to have a state. So we'll have to come back to that. But by taking Isaac's son on himself and working through it and eventually setting things right with Esau and with his wife and with his sons, Jacob anticipates Jesus. I mentioned that. By going before his wives and children to meet Esau, Jacob offers to die for them. That's part of his resolution. We'll get to it when we, when we get to it. Jacob goes out to meet Esau, puts himself between Esau and his family, offers to die for them. And finally, in terms of giving up your son, Jacob has to give up his son Benjamin in order to save his family. We mentioned that last week. So here it is again in your notes that giving up the son that you love that is your favorite, that is your darling, that you have everything invested in. Jacob has to do that. And it's made twice as hard for him because he's already lost Joseph. And so it's not just a matter of having to give up one son. You've already lost one son. It's much harder to give up the other one. And so God doubles the amount of pain and difficulty in this choice. And Jacob undoes it. He undoes Isaac's sin by doing that. So this is a very redemptive story, and it goes all the way down to the end of Genesis. We'll come back to this next week, and then we will get back into the narrative and start looking at how this plays itself out in history. Let's close in prayer. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm